Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, the big news is about Phoenix replacing Node, NPM, and Webpack with something called ES Build. Phoenix 1.6 will officially be using ES Build for this whole asset pipeline. Regarding it, Jose Valim said, This matters because it gives us full ownership of the getting started process. If someone runs Phoenix New installer for version 1.6, five years from now, they should still get a fully functional project. Jose continued saying, In the last weeks, Phoenix New has been broken because of Node SAS and then NPM version 7, plus other reasons in the past. We have always had to catch up. He went further saying, It is extremely important for your first ever Phoenix command to always succeed. And this gets us very close to that. Have you guys been following this? Like this has been huge, right? (laughs) Yeah, I... I love the decision. So so a little bit of background on how they're able to to achieve this is that ES build is written in Go. And if you don't know much about Go, one of the good features of Go is that it has the ability to give you... uh, To compile universal binaries. Any package that you download from Go that it's compiled, it should work on, you know, across platforms, Mac, Windows, and us dozens of Linux users. And yeah, that's not always true with like any number of packages from NPM. It still still sometimes has to compile native binaries. And when you do that, (laughs) you run the risk anytime you run when you're doing any compilation of anything, you run the risk of not having the right linked libraries on there. And OpenSSL is usually a culprit there. There's just a variety of other things that could be the issue too. I know for like Erlang, I can't compile Erlang 22 without, you know, putting in compiler flags on my system because my system is newer than when OTP 22 came out. And so it avoids that kind of issue and Go is pretty good at that. And ES build is built in Go. So we avoid a whole class of issues here. And I thought it was really interesting too, the way they get around NPM it's NPM, the binary on your computer that they get around it. They're actually using NPM's registry still to go get ES build, which I thought was interesting. So it still downloads it from, from NPM. So there is a trusted source here. When Jose was asked, why is ES build a guarantee of long-term support? Jose said, for me, it's more about replacing three dependencies that node NPM webpack, two of which are system-wide and therefore hard for us to pin to a single version. And then you can replace that by a single one that we have full control of. So I think that goes back to what you're talking about. You know, it's not that NPM registry and all that thing is not being used. It's that the binary, which is installed globally, which is continually changing versions and having dependency changes, like with NPM version seven, it broke file dependencies. That's what we're trying to avoid. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I manage it on projects with ASDF, right? I always, Mm -hmm. I always pin node.js i usually go back a couple of versions so like typically i'm on node uh 14 i think because yeah <laughs> i usually run into issues when i'm on the latest uh node and so i i just i just always pin it back a couple of versions i've gotten so used to that i just don't consider it a problem anymore but you know that's not true for everybody that not everybody uses asdf or knows how to pin things you know they just brew install node and that that generally gets you the new the newest one and you better hope that all your other tools are okay with that. <laughs> yeah, and if you're thinking about giving that new user to Elixir a really good experience, 
if that's going to be something they're going to trip and have pain over, then yeah, what can we do to fix it? I think that it's interesting that they just barely finished a rewrite of the whole asset (laughs) pipeline and upgrading to Webpack 5. Yeah, poor, poor Brian. (laughs) Just did all that work. It's probably not funny for some people. (laughs) Jose shared some more about the goal saying, just recently, Webpack 5 broke many plugins. NPM v7 broke file dependencies, etc. Fixing these bugs in a way that's compatible across OSs has historically been a time sink. The goals are to create an option for us to generate new apps with Phoenix New where JavaScript and CSS are still modern with support for building, minification, and more without Node, NPM, or Webpack. All it would need is a portable executable that gets downloaded for you. And that's what the ES build fits in as, huh? Yeah, and it's it's easy to, to think that ES build, just based on its name, is just about building you know JavaScript, but it has support for like a lot of common asset pipeline kind of uh, functions too. So yeah, it, it takes a lot of what Webpack does as well, uh, like minification and, and bundling. Yeah, and Chris McCord shared some insight as well. He, he said, uh, I say this in the fairest way possible after years of support and churn. I feel you, man. Uh, I now consider placing the burden of Node, NPM, and Webpack on new users as actively harmful. Burn. Also, long-term reproducible builds are essential for maintainable software, and Node Node has not stood the test of time. Yikes. Uh, And with ESBuild, those that want to take advantage of the innovation in the Node community, they need only to, quote, NPM install. And ES build will still handle it. So the opt-in path is still as simple as it can get uh, when folks uh, would need to do complex client-side development that uh, involves the, the traditional node tooling. So the, the change allows newcomers a seamless getting started experience and long-term moderate JS and CSS users a rock-solid reproducible build uh, for the lifetime of their projects. <laughs> the lifetime. I'm going to focus on that word lifetime. That's crazy. Hopefully and true. The, an advanced client-side SPA user is a trivial opt-in path. Uh, so ES build allows us to execute on all fronts. End quote. That's the end of what Chris says. That's pretty cool. I, I like the approach that they're doing here, right? You, you start start with easy first, which I think was like thinking back through history. I think the, the re- motivation to using something like brunch Right, brunch was a a hide the complexity and let it be easily configurable. If memory serves, I think brunch ended up being something that became unmaintained. As you can imagine, that that whole pipeline ecosystem moves really quick, so you can imagine it needs a lot of maintenance to keep up um, with everything. In a similar way, I think there's a there's another like Laravel PHP Laravel tool that also creates a layer on top of Webpack to make it easy. I think they even call it mix over there. So it's a little bit confusing, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, there's other frameworks that use that uh, like a crystal, the language crystals uh, framework called lucky. That's a great thing to do too, right? So the goal is there. The need is there to simplify and make it really easy to start with. And uh, ES build, I think we've now realized and are adopting it for its unique approach to being easy to, to go into the ecosystem, yet still having that escape hatch for getting yourself into the rest of the traditional node system. And if there's one thing I've learned about Elixir developers is that they love their escape hatches. We always build one, <laughs> and that's great. I love it. I saw this uh, a tweet from Parker Selbert. He's the creator and maintainer of the Oban job library, but he put it very cleanly into some numbers with these metrics. He says, 
Using Phoenix issues for a quick estimate on the amount of NPM brunch webpack support over the years, there's a total number of issues on the Phoenix project of 2034. And of that, NPM had 591 issues, Webpack had 79, and Brunch had 171, which means that about 30% of the total Phoenix project issues have been dedicated to JavaScript packaging. So you can totally see, backing up what Chris has said, just about the churn and the support needs and the problems that's caused the project and the negative experience it can give new users. And I really like the point that he makes about reproducible builds. You know, if you have a long-term support to be able to backport fixes into older versions of Phoenix and things like that, you want them to be able to pull it off the shelf and have it work. And if you're having to continually like redo and upgrade everything with the Webpack just to make it so you can get a new project up and running, something with the dependency chain and the tooling there isn't quite right. All right. So we talked a lot about features in Phoenix. And as traditional for most of our news, when we talk about new features coming on on the Phoenix and other libraries, it's usually merging into master or main, right? That doesn't mean that's going to be released like in a in a hex, you know, downloadable kind of thing. Like, so you, your next question might be, when is this going to be widely available? When when is Phoenix one point six going to be released? The only answer we have is soon. <laughs> I can wait patiently, I, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> For all we know, it could be before this episode goes live. <laughs> but it was like soon TM. So we'll see. I've been getting those soon vibes too, because I feel like they're they're going through, they're cleaning up issues, they're closing stuff. There's just a couple more things on their issue list that I think need to be done before they release it. So we're we're coming up on that soon here. Yeah. Somewhat related, we saw that Phoenix View is now usable as a separate package. This could be interesting to mailers like Bamboo or Swoosh, or anything that just needs to render HTML server-side outside of the usual Phoenix rendering pipeline. When a new version of Phoenix comes out, I always try and kind of figure out what's changed. How can I upgrade my project so that it doesn't feel super crufty and left behind where a lot of the changes weren't being applied? And I just wanted to call out that there's a tool that David here has created, which uh, I think you call it GenDiff. Is that right? Yeah. It's not very creative. It's just a generator diff, and I shortened it because I'm lazy. <laughs> <laughs> but I love it because this supports all the different flags that you can use to say, oh, this is a no-ecto project, or this one has a, a flag to say, generate the auth, user auth, or the different options that are available. It's a great way to say, oh, well, what's changed from, you know, maybe I'm on 1.4 and I want to get up to 1.6. I can kind of look and see what has happened in between those big chunks so I can apply those changes to my project. Yeah. One of the reasons why I built it was because um, the dash dash live flag that Phoenix New brought in a, a while ago when Phoenix Live View was launched. Like I've had projects that didn't have that, you know, included in the in the initial starting of the app and all the all the differs that I saw out there didn't really let you customize the flags on them. So I started without dash dash live and and I wanted to upgrade the Phoenix version and I wanted to add live view the way that the Phoenix team would add live view. So I always needed that difference to figure out what what I needed to add to the to library, at least as a starting point. So this is very customizable. It runs in a little Docker container. It takes like a couple seconds and it'll give you the a nice fancy diff. But yeah, it's a, a nifty little tool. I'm glad I built it and uh, feel free to use it. Like it's it's nice. 
It includes support for uh, Phoenix Gen Auth as well. That's a separate little library right now, at least, until it's merged into Phoenix proper eventually. I don't think that's happened yet. I think it has happened. It's coming out in one six. Oh, is it? And Mark just volunteered you to support all of these flags. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, if it's in there, I'll I'll get I'll, I'll add the flag and you'll be able to see the diff and it should work. Uh, that'd be really convenient. And if you're a polyglot and you use other languages like Ruby and Rails or Webpacker, there's support in there too to see what those uh, what those differences are from the generators. And there's nerves in there as well. So a good little smattering of generators. You might want to know how to upgrade over time. And just to be clear, that is utils.zest.dev. You can go there and there's a number of different tools, but GenDiff is the name of this one. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And next up, there's a library update for the K8S library. K8S is usually the abbreviated version of saying Kubernetes. This library was updated and got a 1.0 release. So that was really nice. Corey O'Daniel is the one who has put together this release. It's been about a year since the previous release. So he was gave a change log with a lot of updates talking about what's new. But basically, if you're not familiar with it, Kubernetes, it's a large system. And there's the ability from within a Kubernetes cluster to have the services that are running actually be able to talk to other internal Kubernetes APIs. So the K8S library lets your app that's running inside a Kubernetes cluster talk to Kubernetes and be able to query the API. So it's an API client for Elixir. Something cool to check out, especially if you're using Kubernetes. Yeah, a cool thing you could do with this. Let's say that you you have a job system of some sort and you need to, you just got a, a buttload of jobs to go process. You're currently at one, you know, at a node of node size of like one or two or something like that. And now that you know you have a lot of work you need to do, you could just use K8S here, the library inside of your Elixir program and tell your Kubernetes cluster to spin up like 10 more nodes um, to take care of that that work. Like that's just one example, but there's tons of things you could do, you know, with that. So very customizable. Uh, that's, that's, and Corey O'Daniel's a really uh, knowledgeable guy around Kubernetes, uh, among other things. But yeah, this, this is great work here. Good, a good API, a good library to bring in, especially if you're using Kubernetes. The Testing Elixir book launched recently in beta. The authors Andrea Leopardi and Jeffrey Mathias were interviewed on Elixir Wizards podcast about this book. That's a pretty good listen if you're interested. I actually bought the book recently. I've been starting to read it. It's pretty good. If you're very experienced in testing, it's maybe not for you, but they've got some good tips and tricks. And overall, I just like to support the people who are trying to help the community grow, especially around testing. All right, shifting gears a little bit, we got one industry news item, newsworthy item, uh, and that's that the company called Remote, at Remote on Twitter, if you follow them, they've raised $150 million. I think this technically classifies them as a unicorn kind of company, <laughs> which, is, which is pretty cool. So what Remote is about, if you haven't heard of them before, is they're, they're a company focused on remote employee uh, hiring. So you can imagine that is pretty valuable nowadays to the tune of 150 million, at least. So that makes them a very valuable company. And why we mention them here is because they're, they use Elixir, of course, right? And also, I believe, I uh, forget the exact title, but I think, uh, I think Jose Valim is, is an advisor for them. He's or hired to be an advisor for them. So they're notable in the company or in the Elixir space. I, I think they're, they're still hiring Elixir developers even. 
so yeah, they've raised a ton of money proving their platform, their vision, and their their value. And Elixir helped them get there. Uh, so that's always good news. Moving on to some live book news, a follow-up on a previous discussion on CSS and color pickers. They said Livebook does use Tailwind and color inputs don't add any JavaScript. It uses browser native color selector inputs. Yeah, I didn't know they used Tailwind. That's pretty cool. Also new in Livebook, uh, when you're using mix.install on a library, it of course will install the library, right? But then later on, you might realize that you need to install another library or, or two. And so you might go back and add that item to your mix install list and then re rerun it. And today you might encounter an error for that because it's trying to install something, you know, the original thing you put in the list, it's trying to reinstall it. So it's already there. So that's not really an, an issue, right? Like you're just telling it that I need this in addition to these new libraries. An update has been uh, pushed out to detect that error and restart the runtime so they can install the libraries, the additional libraries uh, as well. Uh, so just a, another quality of life update. Pretty cool to, to see that happen. Yeah, because like the alternative is that it would kind of crash and not work and you'd have to go over to the runtime section and stop and restart the runtime and then jump back into your notebook. And this just adds a little button right there to say restart runtime. Yeah. So it's just helpful little dev UX. And next up, a new PR landed that adds branching sections to a notebook. And this is for Livebook as well. The PR includes a great demonstration video that kind of helps explain it. So I'll just do my best real fast and you can check that out if you're interested. But what it lets you do is in your notebook, you can define a section and you say this section is a branch and that will be executed by a separate supervisor and separate processes that are running that other code. So that means it's running asynchronously because normally all of your code is run from top to bottom. And this lets code branch now. And so when it actually branches, it's actually forking kind of the state too. All the state variables that were determined earlier in the notebook are kind of forked and used over inside this little branch. And any changes that you make or any return values from that don't flow back into like the next Elixir cell outside of that branch. So it really is a branch. And the use for this, the whole point is that it lets large workloads be able to just run in the background, especially, you know, so maybe, maybe this is talking to a GPU and it's doing some real crunching. A lot of other stuff can just be running that is not dependent on those results. And so you can have that just be something that's spun off and done separately. I saw Wojtek Mach created a demonstration and this kind of really drove home the idea of how powerful this can be. So he created a branch where he started a plug cowboy server. And then outside of that branch, he was able to make requests using a client to that server. And I was like, oh, let's see, bringing it back home to using the tool, not doing what it was intended to do, not doing any <laughs> machine learning. Like we can now make a server and a client and test things out and not do any machine learning on this notebook. <laughs> now it makes sense. And you think about it, and that, that's all described in a markdown file. That's very clear to read. And it's like, wow, client server. But like, that's really cool as a way of doing education. Right. And that leads into this next item. Another PR landed that a notebook can link to other notebooks. This was a something that I was actually really looking forward to. I wanted the ability to have like an index page, which can organize a whole set of notebooks and then be able to, within that notebook, link to other pages or other notebooks and then go be able to execute those and then be able to link back to your index. I had some ideas on how we could use Livebook for doing 
easier elixir education and training and just kind of playing with the language. That is one way to help organize things out and break them out into like sections that makes more sense. So you're not having like these huge notebooks that just cover a ton of material. That's one I'm really looking forward to actually in the next release. Well, I can foresee the next testing Elixir book just being written completely in Lifebook. <laughs> we, we did some interviews with uh, Slab earlier. They're just a, a documentation tool and they use Elixir. There's other products out in the space too, like Notion, that is like a collection of notebooks here. It's just so interesting to see Livebook evolve this way and this rapidly and to see it all be so open source. And yeah, it started as, <laughs> and maybe the main goal is still about machine learning, or, but it's, I think it's just supposed to be a research notebook and they need those features of like Notion and Slab to you know learn about the subject and, and whatever. It, it is education oriented, so I, it, it still makes sense to me. But yeah, very interesting that they're building such a big product and iterating it so quickly uh, to make it so good. And I wonder, how is that positioned against commercial products like Slab and Notion and all that stuff? You know, it's, it's oriented differently. I, I get it. But the feature set, so similar. It's interesting. Well, I think one of the main things is, you know, with Livebook, you are literally doing remote code execution. Yeah. So that might be a big difference <laughs> against some of the other services, yeah. right? <laughs> well, changing gears now, let's jump into some NERVS updates. This one was really interesting for me because Frank Hunlith of the NERVS project, he encountered a performance problem with NERVS on like really low power devices like the Raspberry Pi Zero. And doing a controlled shutdown of the beam, that was really slow. So he asked about this on the OTP mailing list, and you can read a link to that thread in the show notes. And what was most interesting for me is the insights that came from the OTP team on what was going on and how it could be addressed. The main reason is that unloading a module takes a long time, much longer than loading it. But the explanation of why was so cool. Because all of the running processes in the system have to be checked to see, are you using this module? And if they are, they need to be killed. And additionally, nowadays, the heap needs to be scanned for references to the literals maybe defined in the module that, might, that are going to be purged. So if a process has a reference to a literal that will soon go away, it must be copied to the heap of the process. So you see like, wow, there, there's a lot that's going on. This is why it's taking so long. And the OTP team's summary was, you know, a lot of this code was just kind of copied over from the init start process and just kind of done the reverse. But we don't really need to do that. So maybe you should just create a PR to change this. So that's what happened. Jose opened a PR to make the change. And the idea is when we're shutting down the system, we know we're shutting everything down. All the processes are going away. Anyway, don't bother unloading the modules. This makes a big difference on really low power machines like the Raspberry Pi Zero. And Frank Hunleth gave some feedback that after trying this change, his shutdown time went from about two minutes to under two seconds. So that's huge, right? And, and you realize, like when we're doing like a rolling deploy and you're doing like a controlled shutdown, that work is actually happening there too. And we just don't notice it so much because we're dealing with more capable, faster hardware. But I think that's just one of those things. It's like, you know, the more we kind of poke and prod at something and using it in a different way like this with the Nerves Project, you realize, oh, there's some other places where this can be tuned and cleaned up. That's insane. So when is that going to be released? Is it going to be in a minor or a patch of OTP? It's a good question because uh, I don't know yet that the PR hasn't yet been merged. So we'll kind of have to wait and see 
what release that will make it into. I can't imagine that regular deploys wouldn't see speed improvements as well. Maybe it wouldn't be from two minutes to two seconds, but maybe it would be from two seconds to one millisecond. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Honestly, though, when I was reading about this, I had never considered unloading a module because, you know, like when we're playing with Elixir in IEX and we're dynamically copy pasting in a module, it's loading a module. I never really think about unloading it. Yeah. I presume this has a lot to do with like hot code module reloading and stuff. Probably has a lot to do with that. And uh, if you're shutting down the VM totally, yeah, why unload them? Don't need to do it. Yeah. Along the lines of nerves, 179 is out with minor updates to all systems and tool chains to help with analyzing C and C++ crashes. And along with that, the nerves live book project was released to pull in a bunch of new latest and greatest live book updates and a few other less visible nerves updates. All right, final news item in this legendary news update for you. And it's about nerves. Nerves Conf October 11th in Austin, Texas is happening. It will be a, the day before Elixir Conf in the same venue. So the conference admission includes the Raspberry Pi and some sensors that you'll be using for uh, for training. If you're in the nerves realm or, or close to it, want to learn a little bit more about embedded software, this conference is for you. Again, it's October 11th in 2021. It's in the U.S. in Austin, Texas, and it's uh, piggybacking right, right before ElixirConf. So maybe I should say ElixirConf is piggybacking off of NerdsConf. <laughs> it's a it's single track. Uh, there's uh, five or six speakers to it. So definitely smaller in scope, focused on nerves, obviously. If that interests you, you should check it out. It's nervesconf.com. And that's it for the news. Today's special guest is Cade. Cade, you are with us every time we are here, but we're glad we can actually focus and talk with you a little bit. So welcome to the show you're already on. (laughs) Thank you for having me already here. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me again. (laughs) so one of the fun things is so kate and i used to work together and then the company we worked for got bought and things became a lot less fun so we end up going and doing different things i went to fly.io and i've been working there and kate went to a new company called angel studios one of the things that has come up several times in our discussions with guests in particular it came out where we're talking about like it's almost like flash mob kind of stuff where people are coming up for an event like an auction or you know a release of something and then people were using Phoenix Presence and things like that. And, and there's some challenges that people were running into. And we kept seeing it multiple times. And Cade, you went through the same thing yourself. So like, okay, we should talk about this to kind of help people learn uh, what you'd learned along this way and what some of these other guests of ours had learned along this path so they can have a much smoother journey if they end going down this road. So first, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about kind of where you're working now and what's going on. Yeah. So like you said, I'm working at Angel Studios. I guess the one-liner here is that we are the home of stories that amplify light. Through a platform, thousands of angel investors can choose which titles to be created and funded and distributed. We also allow the creators to make audiences and form communities around these projects, making the story behind the story just as important as the final project itself. So what that kind of boils down to is we've got a funding team that builds kind of a Kickstarter lookalike, some very similar to Kickstarter, where communities are able to come vote with their money on which projects they'd like to see produced. And when it gets funded, then they go produce that series or that movie. This is like video content, right? Yep. So far, we just have television series, basically. 
We've actually only released one so far called The Chosen, but not all of our shows are religious. That just happened to be the first one. It was widely successful. And the thing that makes it different is that it was funded beforehand, right? Like people came together and and voted with their money and said, we will pay $2 million to cover your costs of production and produce this show. We'd really love to see it. And they became investors in that show. When the show starts to make money, or at some time in the future, I don't know, when they're successful, then they will get their money back, plus 20% or something, whatever the terms were of that investment round. This sounds like a micro loan kind of concept. Is that the idea? Kind of. It's like they're investing in it, right? They're investing in the future of this future production in hopes that it'll be successful. They want to see the content and they are early, right? They're putting their money on the line when literally nothing exists. So they're coming in pretty early in the process. So then there's a whole nother side of the company too, which is like the actual distribution of these products that have been funded and have been produced, edited, and they're ready. And so distributing these requires a platform. And so that's the team that I'm on. We're building a platform, building TV apps, mobile apps, web apps, and the back end to, to do all of the streaming, all the transcoding, all of that technical stuff. You know, we're striving to be kind of a Netflix, but nowhere near their technical excellence at this point. That's a really high bar. Netflix does a lot of really great stuff really well. But that's kind of what we're trying to build on this other side of the company is a platform to distribute all of this content, all this media. One feature that I do want to point out because it's very relevant to what we'll be talking about today is the ability for these content creators to premiere their new episodes or their new movies in the form of a live stream. So they can schedule a time and hype everyone up, say like 9 p.m. Eastern time, we're premiering episode three of this season, come join us, right? And then 100,000 people will come all at the same time, all chatting, <laughs> all getting hyped up about it, right? And and we'll live stream the event. And usually the, the director will jump on and he'll say some stuff before the video starts, introduce it, thank everyone for being there, you know, and like form that kind of community that they have going on. And then they'll start the episode and everyone will watch it together. That feature is going to be where, as you might expect, we're using Phoenix channels and a lot of these things like presence where these problems come in. And so that kind of lays the groundwork here, the context for what we're going to be talking about. So what does 100,000 people chatting at the same time look like? <laughs> 100,000 people chatting at the same time looks like three people a second because we throttle it severely. Okay. Because otherwise it's just like, phew, can't even read anything. Yeah, for a couple of reasons, we throttle it. One is you you literally could not read a single thing if we were not throttling it. And second, the mobile apps are React Native, and I think that they would probably just fall over if they were getting that amount of data and having to render that many times. Or your battery would fall over on your phone. Just for <laughs> everyone's benefit, reading and for the, the temperature of your battery and performance reasons, we just we throttle it. But what I love about this this whole setup is because of the nature of the audience, they are invested, right? They are angel investors. They have like committed financially to this to say this is content we care about. Other people aren't producing this content. We want to see it. And so then when you have these events, you do have this whole flood of users, and then they'll be around for the event, and then afterwards they're all gone, right? So you're not having to maintain server infrastructure at this level all the time. 
It's not like a WhatsApp where it's billions of users globally all the time. It's not like that. It's like we're talking about an event where you have this big flood. And this is the same pattern we'd seen with other people with their projects too. Similar kind of pattern. Before we dig into some of the technicals, let's get a little bit more background on this, like your experience with Elixir and maybe Angel Studios, because I know they're a newer company. You know, how did they choose to use Elixir and kind of what's going on there? Yeah. So the traffic, like you said, is definitely very bursty. So the background here is the company kind of pivoted from another company called VidAngel. And you might have heard of that because they were sued by lots of big companies for filtering content. And so the idea was that you would go to their website and you would pay a chunk of money. Like you would buy the movie is what you would do, right? You would buy the movie and then you would flip some switches in the UI and like filter out content that you didn't want to see or hear. And then you could watch the movie. And then when you were done, you had the option to sell the movie back for like 90% of what you paid, right? And so you could kind of you could kind of keep a balance going and you would only have to refill it every once in a while. Anyways, that didn't work out so well. They got sued. That company still exists. They've pivoted. They're doing something else and they now exist as VidAngel Entertainment. They're completely separate. They are doing their own thing. Angel Studios is now no longer in the business of filtering, but instead original content. I'm not 100% sure why Elixir was chosen, but I think the CTO at the time was really into Elixir and felt that it was a good decision. And so they've been using it for a while, but I can't really speak to why they might have chosen it over something else. I know that they were using Python before, and we still do have some remnants of Django monolith repos here and there that we're still using to this day. But other than that, like, of all the companies I've worked at, this is they've got the least amount of code in their legacy system that I've ever seen. Like there's very little, very small pieces of Django are still around. So they've done a pretty good job of moving to Elixir. And, you know, because of the VidAngel days, they did have to pivot pretty fast. So Angel Studios is a success story of finding another avenue, pivoting, doing an MVP, finding success, and you know, finding your footing, doing something else. So how long have you been using Elixir? So I've been doing Elixir full-time since 2019. And before then, I was, you know, dabbling in it, not doing it professionally. Yeah, before Elixir, I was probably, for many years, I was doing mostly JavaScript. So I did a lot of React, did a lot of Node, full-stack JavaScript. Before that, I did some Python and Django. But I would say, and a little bit of Ruby and some Rails, but most of my experience previous to Elixir was pretty heavy in JavaScript. Yeah. And I know when you first came to the company where we were working together, you'd come from that React perspective. We really valued a lot of that front end perspective because we had a lot of React apps, but we were also moving to Live View. So we threw you in the deep end on Live View a lot. Hopefully it hasn't scarred you too much. <laughs> That's true. And you know, those were the good old days when Live View was very young and it felt like every other month we had to rewrite major parts <laughs> of our Live View apps to keep up. And Surface too, right? It's come a long ways. Yeah. Yep. Surface too. So let's come back to the project. So we kind of got some context here about what's going on and the, the number of users that are showing up. So when you first started at the company and you were kind of stepping into this this new arena with this new scenario that new to you with these large events what kind of architecture was it set up with like what were the problems that they were dealing with when i first got there 
I had mentioned earlier that they had pivoted and they had kind of like built out these MVPs to test out the waters for this new idea. And it was successful, but everything was very much still in an MVP state. And some things still are. And that's just the nature of startups and moving fast, right? And so the live chat system definitely had some issues. Chats were being duplicated. Um, we were running a large number of servers. And Elixir is known for not really needing a large number of servers. They were They were booting up maybe like five chat servers, which I thought was a little bit interesting. And then when we were counting how many users were joining the stream, we were storing it in Redis. And somewhere inside of that architecture, it was getting messed up. And everybody would leave, but we would still have like tens of thousands of people apparently watching, but that wasn't the case. Sometimes people were unable to connect. Sometimes we would have throttle issues where we would like completely throttle people and we didn't intend to do it like that. So there were just, there were just like a handful of things going on. And I don't think it helped the case for Elixir necessarily. There was a bit of pushback to investigate third party SaaS packages to replace Phoenix as our live chat system. I think it was maybe the week before I joined, they finished up a like one week sprint or research into different companies. And as you might expect, it's really expensive to be running a hundred to 500,000 concurrent users chatting at the same time. That's not a cheap package to buy. Not only that, but they weren't happy with the burstiness of our scale either. One of them in particular, I think, was written in Java, and they weren't happy with the numbers we were giving them. And we weren't happy with the numbers they were giving us as far as the price was going to be. And so it wasn't working out. <laughs> and this kind of gave us the opportunity to take a little extra time, maybe take two to three weeks and like really clean up the chat service, clean up how we're counting people and give it the love that it needed. And I think in the end, we were able to prove it out. But it was quite the journey getting there. And a lot of things we learned along the way. It's worth talking about what the goal was. So you have chat as one aspect of it. But the other part is, you just really kind of want to know how many people are here for this event. And when do they show up? And when do they leave? You said it pretty succinctly, but it is basically just that people can chat and that we know how many people are currently viewing and participating, right? And so we didn't necessarily need presence because presence gives you a lot more than that. Presence can give you all the metadata about the socket that joined. Like you could put their user ID and their name and their gender and their email. And like you could fill out the whole profile and be passing that around so that you could fill out like a little who's online bar on the side and who just joined and who just left, right? We didn't want any of that. We're not going to show a list of everybody who's here. We're only going to say how many people are here. And when somebody chats, we will display their message and their name. But that doesn't need to be saved on the socket necessarily. Right. So like, it's not like Slack, where if David, Cade, and I all join that I see, oh, David's here now. Mm -hmm. Oh, now David left. Right. And there's like a green bubble saying that he's online right now, or it's gray and he's not online. Mm -hmm. Like we're not tracking that. Right. So that makes sense. So did you guys try using Phoenix Presence? So yeah, for getting the count, we did start with presence and we started with Redis PubSub. As it turns out, and as we've talked to a, a couple of people on the show before, presence can be heavy when you have high burst traffic. We have this weird phenomenon where like, maybe it's not weird, but days leading up to a live stream will announce it. 
And many hours before a live stream, people will start joining and chatting and hanging out, right? And then maybe an hour leading up to the live stream, that's when the real traffic starts coming in. And the closer it gets, the higher number of people joining at any given time. And so maybe 20, 10 minutes before it starts, we're getting thousands of people at a time every time. So the counter updates every two seconds, let's say. Every two seconds, that number goes up by a 1,000, by 2,000, <laughs> the closer we get to the event. And so presence behind the scenes is doing a lot of work for you. So if you've got a cluster like we did, we had five nodes clustered together through Redis, it will send all 1,000 of those joins as a diff to all of the other four servers through Redis. And that was creating a lot of traffic on Redis. And it's not like we were saving a lot of data, not, not a lot of metadata in the, the little presence object. But if you times it by 2,000 and you do it every single time, it's just hammering Redis. It's hammering our network. It's hammering the, the network between the servers, right? It's not mm -hmm. necessarily outbound. But then at the end of the diff, Phoenix will loop over every single object and then broadcast it saying, oh. hey, this thing happened. So now we're hammering every single client with every single join that happened. Like this person joined, this person joined, this person joined 2000 times, bam. <laughs> and it's all with data that you're not actually displaying or need to know, right? Exactly. So it was a bit of overkill. So one of the first things that we did was you can actually override that broadcast. I basically copied and pasted the presence library into our code base because behind the scenes, it's actually using a couple of other internal libraries called Phoenix Tracker. And so I left that all the same, but then just said, actually, don't broadcast every single diff. And then when we say use Phoenix Presence, I just used my own incantation of Phoenix Presence, which I called myapp.presence, right? So then that at least stopped spamming our clients because, I mean, the WebSocket activity was just through the roof when people were joining and leaving. And you're talking about like the mobile clients, right? This is going down yes. to the TV apps and the mobile apps. The web apps. Yeah. And so at this time, we, we didn't have TV apps, but any client that was connected would just get hammered with these diffs. And that's not good. So we got rid of that broadcast, but we still have the problem of these diffs are still being broadcasted internally to keep the clusters in sync. And at the same time, we also had some version of counting how many people existed. Well, I forgot that we did it two ways. The reason that we went to using Phoenix Presence was because originally the count was being done in Redis. And every time somebody would join, we would do a Redis call and increment something. And every time someone would leave, we would do a Redis call and decrement something. And that was just completely getting out of sync all the time. And that was a massive problem because the producers and directors would be on the live stream and they would be like all excited that we had like a million viewers. And then they'd be like, sorry, <laughs> actually it was a hundred thousand. That's still really good though. <laughs> so to fix that, we were like, we need to go to presence, right? Like this will fix it. Presence knows for sure what's going on. And then what, what you can do is you can just call phoenix tracker.list or something or count. There's something on there that you can do. And there's a whole slew of things you can do in there. There's like a dirty list that you can count, which is like, I'm not 100% accurate, but I am eventually consistent. If people stopped joining and leaving for a couple of seconds, the dirty list would eventually be accurate. But it's faster because it doesn't have to do certain things. I'm not sure of all the intricacies there. So we use the dirty list to count it. But no matter what we did, 
tallying up that list and distributing the state across the whole cluster and all of that stuff was just like destroying our CPU. And so in order to fix the problems of people not being able to connect because the CPU was, or the servers were just overloaded, we just had to ramp up our servers to these like massive 70 CPU machines so that at least the live streams would work and like cover us from whatever we were doing wrong until we figured it out, right? So let me just clarify that and make sure I got this right. One of the short-term kind of hack fixes was, okay, we've got these five nodes that are being clustered together and the diffs they're sending across to each other is just huge. What if we just get rid of all those, the five nodes, and just have one super node? Then we're not having to do any cross-node diffing. Is that right? That is right. And it actually performed pretty well when we got rid of clustering. And really, because what I think is interesting about that, because I remember I was actually shopping in the store, the grocery store with my wife at that time. And you were like sharing some stuff on Discord with me and like, check out these graphs of like the user counts <laughs> going up. It's, this was at a time where it's like, is this going to work? <laughs> yeah. It was a crunch time. And it was like really cool that it was working and it worked really well. And what I loved though, is that, yeah, this is a really beefy, expensive machine. But as a short-term fill... That worked really well, right? Because you could shut the machine down or downscale it a whole lot after the event. That's right. Yeah. That kind of requires you to know when those events are going to happen, though. Some folks may not have the, you know, the good knowledge ahead yeah. of time that some other, you know, outside event is about to cause spiky, you know, traffic on my on, on my servers. I think you guys will, will end up knowing when it's going to happen. So that's good. Yeah, they will know. And like, if you're hosting an auction, you'll know. So with certain scenarios, it works really well. But yeah, like if it's something that's not necessarily within your control, like Twitter, and something happens on Twitter, and now everyone's tweeting about it. It's like, you don't know when those are coming. Yeah, we definitely have the luxury of knowing when things are happening, at least right now, while we have few people putting content on our platform. But, you know, this was just a temporary fix until we figured out why we had such performance issues. This was getting us across the line and giving us successful live streams. So that got you through that event. How did you go about getting help with that or figuring out what, what it was? What'd you do? So at this point, I was a little bit stumped. And so I reached out to Elixir Forums. And we can put a link in the show notes on the post that I put. And I basically said something along the lines of, we're using presence. We need to keep track of a user count. It has massive CPU implications. And Jose responded pretty quickly and said, yeah, don't use Phoenix presence. That's definitely overkill if all you want to do is keep track of how many are connected. Instead, do something else like this. And he kind of gave some suggestions and we took his suggestions and spent the next day pair programming on it, working through it. And then I came back maybe like 15 or 20 days later, long gap of time, finally had figured everything out. And I actually put a gist in there with what we eventually settled on. And we can talk about what we settled on, but I just want to put a disclaimer in here that I think it's still not as good as it could be. I think there's definitely still some improvements that could be made. The CPU still spikes a bit when we're getting massive bursts of people joining, which I guess is to be expected, but I still think there are things that could be done to make it better and not be so bursty on the CPU. But with that disclaimer in place, what we ended up eventually landing on was completely stripping out Phoenix Presence and just using a pool of gen servers. One of the problems that we had previously was when we scaled to more than one server, our gen server that was letting the clients know 
of how many people were watching, every single server was was running that gen server, right? And so we had that age-old problem of how can I only run one process in a whole cluster, right? So the first thing we did is we implemented native clustering. So we set up our AWS account networking to let us cluster without Redis because we were just hammering Redis before and we thought maybe we should just take a step back and simplify and just let it natively connect to each other. So we connected all of the nodes together and we made a global supervisor so there would only ever be one process emitting a broadcast every two seconds to every connected client, letting them know how many people have joined. So we cleaned that up. That sounds like it's a very small message, right? Because you're just sending out like, here's the new count. It's true. But previously, it was heavy because it was having to do a lot of counting. And then every server would have to do that counting every two seconds. And so the further we scaled, the harder it got, the more messages that were being sent. So we fixed that problem. You can scale out as far as you want. Only one server is now doing that counting. And then since we're getting rid of presence now, we had to have a new way of counting who was joining and who was leaving. And so what we ended up using was process.monitor. So as soon as somebody connects, it's its own process, right? Inside of that socket Elixir file. So if you just say monitor this PID, then you will get very accurate messages when that PID leaves or when the socket disconnects, right? So that was one thing that our Redis implementation before was missing was that it didn't have reliable information on when the socket was disconnecting. But by monitoring the PID instead, you get very reliable information on when somebody joins and when somebody leaves. So what we did is we set up a a big supervision tree that would span out to like 90 nodes if it needed to, (laughs) Broadway style. What would happen is somebody would join and then we would p-hash their PID and send it to one of these 90 gen servers. And then they each would have a little group of PIDs that they're keeping track of themselves, right? So each one of these little gen servers inside of a pool is maybe keeping track of like 10,000 PIDs. Before we pooled, we noticed that it took forever to drain. We're doing tons of load testing. Like every day, we're just like hammering our servers with hundreds of thousands of joins and disconnects to test all this stuff every single day. So we would hammer our server and then they would all disconnect and it would take 10 minutes for that counter to go from 100,000 to zero because that queue length of, hey, this pit is down. I'm just letting you know because you're monitoring it to process that queue seriously took like 10 minutes to get through it. There were so many down messages to process. Wow. So we had to we had to fan out, right? We had to fan out and have like 90 gen servers so that if everybody leaves at the same time, which generally <laughs> is what happens, that that count almost instantly goes down to zero. And so what we ended up with was a local counter, a counter supervisor, and a global counter. And so the global counters are these gen servers I've been talking about. They're keeping track of PIDs individually. But then what they do is every couple seconds, they update their global counter. And so the global counter is just a counter that's sitting on the box, keeping track of the whole pool of 90 gen servers. So he he knows among all of these 90, I more or less have a total count on this whole machine, on this whole node of like 80,000 active connections, right? And then we had a global aggregator that we called it, which was only running one per cluster. And its job was to tally up all of the nodes, whether there be one node or two nodes. We generally don't scale up 
past two or three anymore. But its job was to then just tally up all of the different nodes in the cluster and get a grand total of more or less like accurate to the last like two seconds, how many connections across all of my nodes do we have? And then its job is to every two seconds update all the clients. And so we've got like three levels going on here, right? Like local counters keeping track of every PID connected, global counters keeping track of everything connected on the whole box, and global aggregators keeping track of the grand total. That's awesome. Where does it stand right now? You said like you may be running two, maybe three servers. Are these like super beefy or are these, what size machines are these? Our last live stream, maybe about two weeks ago at the time of this recording, I want to say we ran like two or three, eight CPU. I'd have to go look. They were the C size mm-hmm. uh, machines. So they were higher on CPU and lower on memory. They were pretty low on memory, pretty beefy CPUs, but only eight of them, not 72 of them. <laughs> you know, our auto scaling groups are something's messed up with them because they did not auto scale. And so we actually didn't scale up before this last live stream started when normally we would. Mm -hmm. And so we actually left them at their idle scale, you could say, and they performed fine. And so (laughs) we're all like, well, that was scary because we forgot to scale, but that was great that it did fine. (laughs) (laughs) So I just want to make sure that you, dear listener, catch this resource. It's in the show notes. It's where Kate actually originally asked this question on Elixir Forum. So it's also a call out to Elixir Forum. You know, a lot of people who, when they're coming to Elixir community, they say, oh, Elixir must not be very big. There must not be much happening because I go to Stack Overflow and I don't see a lot there. Well, it's just because our community, for whatever reason, we kind of tend to congregate more on Elixir Forum. So that's where you went to ask this question. Very quick response from Jose Valim, the creator. It's kind of an authoritative, yeah, let's, let's see if we can get you some help. And I loved also that you came back later. Uh, you got insight into what you needed to solve your problem. And you got it solved. You're able to deliver on the business need. And then later, you're like, you know, I'll come back and I'll put together that gist that pulls it all together. And so I was like 20 days later in this little thread, you can see he came back and said, yep, this is the kind of report. And here's the summarized data. So which is really nice so that, you know, you, dear listener, you're coming along, you don't have to kind of reconstruct it from this whole conversation and and all the different pieces of code that were flying around. Appreciate that you did that. That's awesome. Yeah. I left out some stuff like the registry and how can your pool know where everything's located, all of that stuff. There's a lot of intricacies there involved. And Jose, for example, gave some great feedback, but we kind of had to read between the lines. I hadn't really done full-blown registry before. I wasn't exactly sure how to pool a bunch of gen servers. Like A lot of stuff we kind of had to read between the lines, research, trial and error, trial by fire sometimes. (laughs) So yeah, I just wanted to put it all together, put some concrete examples up that was like, this is how we did it. And this code actually works. We used it. I do want to throw out there though, having like 122,000 maybe was our peak active concurrent people watching, chatting. I mean, they're not all literally chatting at the same time, right? Like a large majority of the 120,000 people don't actively chat. But we were idling at one point around 7% CPU. Once all the burstiness of the joins and leaves are over and people are just chatting, Mm -hmm. it performs phenomenally. Idling with 120,000 people, just around 7% CPU on these not super beefy servers. So 
definitely a little more work to do around the burstiness of joining and the load and strain that that puts on the server. I'd love to do a little more research around that. But overall, we've landed somewhere where it's probably been weeks since we've touched the code base. It just works, even forgetting to make sure auto-scaling works, it still works. <laughs> so overall, we're pretty happy. It's it's meeting the business needs. No longer are people feeling like we need to branch out and pay a third-party vendor to do this for us. It's a heck of a lot cheaper than buying one of those services. We're pretty happy with it overall. Well, Kate, I'm glad we're able to take some time to sit down and go through this because we've wanted to cover this for some time just because this topic and this scenario or a scenario very similar to this has come up several times. And we're just seeing like, oh, yes, this is this is something people are hitting. So you know, if you're out there, dear listener, and you're hearing it, you're at a company where you're trying to do something like this, or you're, the business people are talking like, hey, we would like to have these big events and lots of chatting and check out these resources. Give this podcast a listen, share it with someone who you know is going through something like this. Thank you for taking the time so we could sit down and actually catch up on all of this. It's kind of like a retrospective. Yeah. But if people have any questions or want to get in touch with you, are you open to anything like that? Yeah. So I think the best way to get a hold of me would be Twitter at KDB Ward. Happy to answer questions. So yeah, I'll eventually respond on Twitter. I'm not the most active on Twitter, but I'll see it. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.